0: It's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself.
1: A movie is is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and for anybody that's actually made one, you know what I'm talking about. You you go to the movie and you sit down and you watch a movie and you, oh, this is great, you know, this is wonderful. There's a reason. There's like four hundred names associated with this thing because it takes a lot of people to pull this off and to do it well. And so. If I had to do it over again, it I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a low budget film unless it was just enough to be able to hire at least the talent available to me to know that I would be able to pull it off and do it well. Does that make sense?
0: Welcome to Innovation and in Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we have got my friend, Darren Fletcher. Fletch, thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure. I'm excited to do it. So what do you... When people ask what you do, what's your explanation? Well... Um, I, I,
1: there's there's two kinds of people that ask me that question. One wants to have a long conversation, which is very rare, and the other one is just sort of going. Oh, ah, so what do you do, right? And so rather than saying like I don't know, I'm a garbage man, or you know I I pick up you know stuff after dogs at the dog park, I just kind of usually will tell them I just make movies. And unfortunately, that that sort of like makes people want to ask more questions, which probably is a bad idea. I should probably say that I I am you know a, a dog. Picker upper. But but no, I, I, I usually tell people that I'm a filmmaker and then they usually say, Oh, well what movies have you made? And so it starts this whole conversation that you didn't want to have in the first place. But
0: that's that's okay. So in addition to the movies, because I definitely want to talk about that today, tell people about sneakonthelot.com.
1: So Sneak on the Lot, it was something that we, uh, that Chet Thomas, my partner and I, this was 19, what was it, 99, the Columbine took place, the Columbine shooting, and so I was driving to set that morning and just thought, wow, this is, uh, I guess it just sort of blew my mind, like, when was it suddenly okay to bring a weapon to school? Like, when did that happen? And of course, it never, it was never okay, and so we just thought, like, what could we do? Like. As filmmakers, all I know how to do is make movies, which is kind of pathetic. But I thought maybe there's something we could do with educators, right? Because whatever the solution is to this, and there's lots of different solutions, whatever the solution is, it involves education. So my brother was a teacher at a little local school high school. And I went there, this is three days after Columbine. And I went there and asked his, if I could do, if I could have your students write an essay and the essay was about what it would take you to do the things that these kids did at Columbine. And, and I said, you leave your names off of it, use it as a cathartic sort of experience of expressing yourself and dealing with this issue. And I still have them in my drawer. There's about uh, 72 different sheets And out of those 72, there were about eight that said, I'm pretty close. And I thought, wow, that's in my brother's class. Sheesh, there must be something we can do. So I immediately went over to the principal's office, showed him the letters and said, look, I don't know if it makes any difference whatsoever, but if you want to teach kids how to make movies, I'll open up a shop in town and for free, you can send these kids over to our shop and and I will teach them how to make movies. And so we did that for a year. And what I learned was really interesting. There was the uh, there's a group of people, kids, students that are very similar to the students that, that did those things at Columbine. And they're and they're the students who've kind of fallen through the cracks of the system. And there's no place for them, really. And a lot of states were do at the time. I don't know what it's looking like now, but they were doing away with the arts. They were doing away with with a lot of the things where these students gravitate towards. And then none of them had film programs. The internet at that time was like nothing in schools. It didn't exist. So we weren't quite sure how we were going to proceed because after a year of doing this, we had to get back to work and start making money again. So we decided, let's start to put this stuff online and see if anybody's interested. So in, in 2000, we started putting this online, which was way before anybody was thinking about courses online, which is huge now. But at the time, no one had even thought of it. And so we started doing that. We started teaching kids remotely. And it was pretty interesting. And everybody said, how'd you come up with the name of Sneak on the Lot? What is that? And there's a story that goes behind it that I've always found fascinating, which was that when Steven Spielberg was a young man, he snuck on the lot at Universal. And he kind of set up, as the the legend goes, who knows what's legend and not anymore, but As the legend goes, he found an office and kind of set up shop. And somebody came, you know, came knocking on his door and he showed them his, like, not a student film because he wasn't in film school, but it was a little film called Amblin'. And from that, our relationship grew. And by the time he was 19, he was directing television for Warner Brothers. Like, this nobody kid was directing television for, that's unheard of. And so we wanted to make it feel like students who were joining this were sort of, you know, somehow sneaking on the lot, (laughs) jumping over the walls that Hollywood has has put up. And so they're able to express themselves. And ultimately what we found was that these students who are gravitated towards this topic, making movies, like it gave them a voice that they didn't otherwise have. It gave them a way to express themselves without violence or a weapon. And it gave them a way to express themselves in which other people, it connected with them and they understood them for the first time in their lives, they were being understood. And so from that, we just thought, well, we have a hit. This is fantastic. We got to, we got to tell everybody and that's kind
0: of where it started. So what's funny is I didn't know any of that backstory. So like I was telling <laughs> you, yeah, no, no. Like I was telling you, so my mentor, Matt Ball, he's the print director at DreamWorks oh. at the time. Chat, I think, mm-hmm. had yeah. had yeah. previously worked there with him. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And yeah. So, so somewhere in there, he puts us together and chat's like supposed to give me some advice. So that has no idea who I am, but he's like, he hammers me. He takes a couple phone calls And he gives me a password to that website. I don't think I ever told you that, but like, I remember this website from like 2004, 2005. And there's like the little guy that like you go around and like, there's like a physical map of the lot. And and he like sends me this DVD of the course. And what's funny is I think I still have that package from him from 15 years ago, but I remember the movie guys voice on it.
1: Right. The movie like, I, I, I think it was called ISM Independent Student yeah. Media or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. But the thing that I remember yeah. is like it actually having good stuff in it. Like the guy who wrote RoboCop is explaining how yeah. he, he writes it all down on these three by five cards. Even though he doesn't really have the movies, like he knows these parts of the movie and he just puts it all on three by five card three by five cards, and then he like rearranges them later. And all of a sudden, it's like it doesn't feel like this like black box that only like the anointed ones could. Do it's like oh that's yeah that's how that's how he wrote RoboCop you know what I mean and it's yeah. like it's a real movie I actually knew that everybody else knew and then you hear this way it's yeah. like a sharpie marker and had <laughs> recipe cards and you're like oh yeah this is you know regular humans could learn we this. Can do this
1: yeah 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 that was Ed Neumeier, and he was he was one of our very first interviews and since then every show we do we just kind of throw somebody in the chair and and interview him so. I think we have three Oscar winners on the site now. So we've got Conrad Hall, who who we interviewed about two weeks before he passed away. And what team? Uh, and won the me, Oscar I'm not familiar with year. him.
0: Yeah, what, what was his? Connie Hall
1: is one of, he is a legend cinematographer. Like people growing up who want to be cinematographers look to Connie Hall and say, that's the guy I want to be, you know. I want to mimic because everybody just worships the ground he walks on, and he was such a great
0: guy. Cold Hand Luke, Bush oh Cassidy, shoot, Sundance there's Kid. just so many
1: of them. His last film was called Road to Perdition. Oh yeah. So, but he won the Oscar that year for that film, and he did American Beauty before that. And you know what? I just, just watched.
0: I just watched last week with my kids, uh, which I had never seen. He did Searching for Bobby Fischer.
1: Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Okay. Which was a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. I've always heard of it. So we interviewed him. Yeah, and we did Janusz Kamiński. So Janusz won the Oscar for for the cinematography for Schindler's List, and uh, you know he did Private Ryan and Munich and all of Steven's movies since Schindler's List. So we interviewed him, which was. He's crazy, but he's fascinating, so good at what he does. And then we also interviewed the other Oscar winners, Jerry Mullen, who we partnered with on several pictures. So Jerry produced Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. And so, yeah, we we just kind of keep adding. And the whole goal was to not just have Oscar winners on there, but also have, you know, the journeymen, the tradespeople who – You know, set up lights and run electricity and roll sound, and so that you could get a sense of all the different jobs and techniques on a movie set.
0: Okay. So, what's funny is I don't think I've actually ever asked you this. So, if my high school or junior high kid, because I've got kids who are interested in film, if my kids want to take this, what does it work? How does it work? What does it cost? How's that go? Okay. So,
1: yeah. What we learned early on was that selling to education is maybe the hardest racket in the world. Like to public education, it is, I don't know, I can't even describe to you how difficult it is to sell a product to public educators, especially when it's something, it's a, it's a, it's a topic they don't teach, right? So they may not teach the product. First of all, the class filmmaking, you know, how do you, Uh, Most teachers don't know how to teach it, right? Let alone be able to actually have a program in their school and what do they do from day to day. So that was the hardest thing. And then the second hurdle that we had to leap was, well, there's no internet. At the time in 2000, there was no internet. Schools didn't have the internet. And if they did have the internet, they certainly didn't let their students access the internet. It was just for teachers. And so it's been a long journey getting to that place where, you know, getting to that, like we're in 500 schools, Mark kind of thing, you know, it's been a long journey. It's been a long trudge through the mud, but they're also the most loyal customers. So once you're in their pipeline, like it's almost impossible to get out of their bloodstream. Like they just, you know, every year they ordered over and over and over and over, which is great. So if you're a school that wants, Sneak on the lot in your in your classroom. First of all, just share it with the teacher. Share it with uh, with someone in your school. Said I, I want to be able to take this class, and here's here's what it is. It's sneakonthelot.com. It's super easy, you know, and and it's all built in there. There's right now we have 13 courses on everything from writing, producing, directing, cinematography, and it walks you through the whole process of making a movie step by step, and then you upload it. And now we have the whole system where we can find who the best are. So I know who the best students are on, my, on, this, on the lot at any given time. I can tell you who they are. I can tell you what awards they've won, all of it. And we built this, the whole system. After we started, we realized, well, you know what? Hollywood is always trying to find the next Tom Cruise, the next Steven Spielberg. They're in this constant sort of state of anxiety of like oh when he gets too old who's coming next who's the next guy i gotta get that next person i gotta sign that next actress before they become you know huge because you never know which like kernels are gonna pop in the pan and and so what we did was build a system that at a very young age in high school i can show you students who could compete professionally some of them easy some of them i mean we just we held a contest we do contests on the lot all the time and we did a contest recently that was for directing and they had to mimic alfred hitchcock right that was the that was the whole sort of thing so all these students first had to figure out who alfred hitchcock was they didn't know who he was (laughs) right and then they had to mimic him and they had to make a movie in his flavor and his style and you would be stunned at some of the films that came back like wow so what we did was we started pulling professionals in to judge these students' films, and one of these professionals was a professor at USC, arguably the most prestigious film school in the world. And he's on that body that chooses what students get access, get admitted to to USC. And so we had him watch like I think ten of them. I think we got we limited it down to like the ten best, and then we had him come in and do reviews and everything. So the students all get reviews by professionals. And then our tiebreaker was Jerry Mullen, So we had an Academy Award winning producer for Schindler's List come and be the tiebreaking vote on on the the two winners. But it was interesting because as this professor was watching these films, he came back and he said, I gotta be honest, these kids that you're teaching in high school are better than 90% of the students that we see applying to USC. He said, "I, I watch 60 films every year from students that are being trying to get admission to USC film school. He says, out of those 60, we pick like three that move forward. Three out of like 60. He said, out of the 10 I watched, I would have pushed forward seven of the ones that you have. And I thought,
0: Hey, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good (laughs) accolade there, man.
1: So anyway,
0: I love it. Well, yeah, let's talk about, jerry mullen for a minute you know i have heard such great things about him from from matt ball oh, and yeah. others and and um, you and chet have done so much with him over the years yeah what do you think i mean schindler's list is obviously means i mean jurassic park all those other things but schindler's list is like a life changer for me yeah, yeah. And what do you think is different about Jerry Mullen?
1: I mean, in his there's a lot of different personality traits that make up each one of us, right? And certain traits are really desirable in, in any given producer, which is what Jerry is. And, there, and there's a couple of different things that really kind of apply to this, right? So Ted and I were having this conversation not too long ago. That's like two weeks ago. And I asked him, like, what is the one trait that you would say would make a really great producer? And he says, oh, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't think it's what you think I would say. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he said, I want someone who's level-headed. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could totally see that. Someone went, when the bullets are flying, it just remains this even keel that gets you through the storm, right? I was like, I could totally see that. I think another trait that Jerry has is his honesty. He's honest. I mean, you might say that he's honest to a fault, but there's no fault in it. You know what I mean? Like he's that honest. And so he never has to backtrack on anything. He never has to pull anything back. He never has to explain himself because everything he says is, is not just not an exaggeration of the truth. It's exactly the truth, what he says. And because of that, Every single person down the food chain trusts him. And that trust in who he is solidifies everything. Like, it all comes together in that moment. Now, a producer is responsible for, like, the schedule. They're responsible for the budget. They're responsible for bringing the crew together. There's all sorts of other things that they do logistically. But if all of those people can't trust that person at the top, then – it's of no use. Like it's all just a waste, you know? And so I would say Jerry has that and he's earned it. It's not something that he he got and and didn't do anything for. He earned it. And everybody on the crew trusts him explicitly. They know when he says something, it's going to happen. He's going to do it.
0: That's great. You know, there's so much lore about Steven Spielberg right oh, has yeah. he has he ever told you some stories or some things or just insights of because you about know, Steven? yeah because he actually works with him one-on-one all those oh man times.
1: well that's the other thing fun about jerry like if you're gonna sit with him for a day like you will just sit at his feet like this the whole time <laughs> because he tells the greatest stories that you just go wow that's amazing like I've never heard that and it's unbelievable, you know. And so there's, yeah, there's a couple of stories that I've always really enjoyed that Jerry has shared. One of them that I like to tell because it it, it speaks to who Steven is and it also speaks to who Jerry is. And they were doing Jurassic Park 2 and they were trying to figure out how they were going to shoot this next sequence. And Steven wasn't really sure. I mean, I'm sure they storyboarded it. I'm sure they they plotted it out, but he was like, yeah, you know, I'm. he was toying with ideas, trying to figure out, what's the best way to do this, right? Which is every shot, a director is doing the same thing. So they were setting up the shot, whatever it is, and Jerry went over to the craft service table, which is where they have like all these treats and stuff laid out every day, all day long. And there was a grip standing there. And now a grip is a person who's on the food chain of a film crew. You know, he's, he's down a ways, you know, very important people and very skilled and gifted, but not the producer, not the director, not, you know, the cast or whatever. And Jerry walked up to him and said, how are you doing? He says, oh, great. And the guy said, well, so so what's slowing us down? What, oh, oh, well how come we're not rolling and Jerry said oh Steven's just trying to figure out the best way to do this next setup to which the script says oh well I know how I'd do it Jerry says well how would you do it and he says well you know I would I would hearken back to the days of Jaws when Stephen you know, like didn't shoot the shark it was just the shark's perspective going through the water and it was terrifying I mean that's that's what scared everybody out of their mind is because they didn't know what was underneath the water they couldn't see it so I'd shoot that like that, and I'd push the camera through these tall blades of grass like it was the, the raptor's point of view. And at that moment, Stephen stepped out from behind a tree, and he was he was close enough. He'd been listening to the whole thing, and he said, thank you. I'm going to use that. And sure enough, it's in the movie. Like, there's <laughs> a whole sequence where they're going through the tall grass, and that was a grips idea and steven was not so high and mighty as to think that he couldn't receive an idea from a grip i've always liked that story you yeah,
0: know you think about how many of us we get a little success people start treating us like we're special we want we want to be recognized for our genius or we want to attract investors or the press or whatever it is right and mm-hmm. yeah I feel like there's just been this theme especially the last year on the show maybe more so than the than the previous years of like these just wildly successful people who built multi-billion dollar businesses over and over there's this like humility to listen and not just like listen wow. for confirming evidence but like you know boots on the ground talking to customers not just looking at reports like just the humility to the humility to look at all ideas on their merit instead of just the source the idea came from. And it seems so simple. And yet it's not really that common in my experience, except for so many of like the highest achievers who've been on this show, like preach the gospel of like humble listening, go to the source, boots on the ground. And it's like- Well, Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, that's why they're at that level is, first of all, they don't have
1: anything to prove. Like, um, I mean, I've been to so many Hollywood parties and I remember going to these parties early on and I felt like such a, a fraud. Like I'm walking through these parties and there's these famous people and everybody wants to know, like, who are you? And in Hollywood, everybody's projecting this image. So if you're not Brad Pitt or Steven Spielberg, they're all projecting this image that's like, well, I'm this producer or I'm such and such. And I hadn't produced anything and I was just like, what am I doing here? And so people would ask me, you know, what do you do? And so I started my whole career as a storyboard artist. So rather than try and project like all this stuff so that I could make like people believe that I'm something that I'm not. I literally started telling people at these parties, like I'm a storyboard artist. And you'd be stunned at how fast that ended the conversation. Because. They didn't want to know a storyboard artist. It didn't do them any good, and so they didn't care about a storyboard artist, you know. And so that would end the conversation. And I was like, "Well, that's probably someone. If you don't care about me enough to find out who I am and what my gifts are and what my talents are, and especially in Hollywood, because you're not if like you're an assistant in Hollywood, that's way down the food chain. Nobody's an assistant very long." And it's only a matter of time before that person is running a studio or they're, you know, running feature development for some network or some uh, studio, some studio somewhere. So it's like you never want to diss anybody. But also like you want to feel important. So I just stopped telling people like trying to project this image that I'm something I'm not. If you don't want to talk to me because you think I'm not important, that's fine. I think we're done, you know? And so the more, the bigger you get, I think the less likely you are to try and project this image of who you want people to think you are.
0: And yet, does that make sense? Yeah. We all know big cheese people who think, they're the only one with a good idea. I mean, that yeah. that book, Good to Great, talks about like those level four leaders, tyrant with a thousand helpers, you know, right? right. Like oh, they do yeah. exist. Oh, yeah. They force a personality, oh, yeah. being a genius, cracking the whip. Yeah. Like everyone says like that won't go far. Yet newsflash, some people go really far on that. Oh man, there there are filmmakers. I won't name them,
1: but there are filmmakers who have made some of your favorite movies who are absolute nightmares to work with. Like you would never invite them over to your house to, to have dinner. Like you just don't want their company. But the truth is, that they are geniuses and they do have great ideas. I'm not saying they have all the great ideas, but when you have in the room, one guy who just keeps throwing out really great idea after great idea, you kind of have to go, who is that guy? (laughs) Like like every idea he's thrown out, is really good. Like one in 10 is okay, but like nine out of 10, ah, he's pretty good. And so what happens is they end up catering to that person. Right. And this is the, this is the flaw of Hollywood in my opinion is they cater to that person. Oh, can I get you a coffee? Can I get you more money? Can I get you girls? Can I get you fame? Can I get you... And pretty soon you've created a monster that you can't stop, you know? And, and these people are, like, they're up there making the biggest movies out there and they are monsters. But they because also... that industry is catered to every stupid little whim, you know?
0: But also, when they crash and burn, oh, yeah. there's a lot of gas that gets thrown on that fire, you know? Yeah. They don't end up with
1: a whole lot of friends trying to bail them out.
0: Yeah. No. It's interesting. You look at somebody like, I heard this comparison of Chevy Chase versus Bill Murray, right? Oh yeah. i not heard this. Okay. They're such big names, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Bill Murray is still working all these years later and Chevy Chase is not. And it's because everything was purportedly, everything was the Chevy Chase show. And with Bill Murray, like he's so willing to support and willing to be part of a team and, At least that's the way I heard it described. Is that what you heard? I've heard it slightly different.
1: But I mean, I think both of those characters are very, very funny. And both of them have sort of had their their moment in the sun. And I think there's probably flaws on both sides of that story that that probably caused a massive falling out. In the end, I think it ultimately comes down to, in all honesty, that Bill Murray is just more talented (laughs) as an actor. And so people liked what Bill brought to a movie more than they did Chevy Chase. I mean, if I was casting a movie, I could find a role for Bill Murray easier than I could for Chevy Chase. Does that make sense? Sure. Like Chevy, fits a certain, like, hey, Fletch, dude. It's my, you know, I am Fletch.
0: So <laughs> uh, like,
1: you know, we all love that movie, but, but that's about as good as he ever got as an actor. Like you, he's Chevy Chase in every movie. So you don't need Chevy Chase in every movie. You need somebody who can act.
0: You know, it's been so, fun. I've been this year. I've been watching a lot of like '90s and late '80s movies with my kids. My kids yeah. are like sixteen to ten. Oh, they're so
1: much better than what we're what we're seeing
0: today. However, so much better. I will say we do vid Angel a lot because you have no idea how much Goonies and Ferris oh, yeah. Bueller's Day Off. I swear, and you're like at your ten year old. You're like, oh, sorry, I didn't. I didn't realize that was in it. You know. It's funny you should mention that because at Sneak on the lot.
1: we have a whole section of writing uh, when you're writing a screenplay that talks about, look, you got to write for your audience. Who do you want to see this? Who do you want to like it? Who do you want to pay for it? Like, I mean, you have to start thinking like this is a business, right? Because it is. I mean, you can call it an art form if you want. It's Pretty naive to think so, because somebody put up a lot of money and they want to see that money back, right? They usually don't just go, here's a bunch of money, we don't really care, you know, if we see it back. It's not how it works. So they want to see it back. So you, you need to start right. And a, a company that does this really well is Disney. They know their audience, they know their target, and they don't make things that would offend that target market, right? Which is ironic because if you they make more money, bar none, than all the studios, maybe even combined. Disney makes more money, and the reason being is they they make PG movies, PG, G, and PG thirteen.
0: Those well, are their Especially three Especially things. now that it's Disney, Pixar, Marvel. I mean, that is just like they've got known audiences that they know what to give that audience time after time, and after they time. will pay
1: for it over and over again.
0: Now let's contrast that
1: with what the studios do the other studios. So the other studios are making serious cinema, right? So, which almost always means R rating. Well, there's been so many studies that you can do the research on. I won't cite them, but those studies will prove to you that like 70% of the income in Hollywood comes from PGG and PG-13 movies. So why on earth? If you were a shareholder in, let's say, one of the other studios, any one of the other studios, why on earth would you sit by and say, "Yeah, let's continue to make R-rated movie after R-rated movie" when
0: that's not who's going to see the movies? Well, it's be. I have a few suggestions, and I want you to tell me what you think. I think part okay. of it is they want to watch. They want to make the movie that they want to watch. I think, that, yes. I think that they want to make the movie that their friends will think is cool in certain cases. Okay. And maybe maybe win an award for, you know, and being edgy and non-conformist, right? And, sure. and I think that, you know, every time there's a Deadpool or something like... Anytime you get, like, an exception to the rule, it ter- serves as, like, great justification for years to come. Like, instead of going, like... It does. Deadpool won the lottery. <laughs> this is an aberration <laughs> instead of a commonality. Anyways... Yeah. T- tell me tell me how you see it differently. No,
1: it's, I don't see it much differently. That's it's pretty darn close. Those filmmakers who want to make those movies. Now, you understand there's two businesses, and this is important. And this is something we also teach on speaking a lot that most colleges won't tell you. There's two different industries in the film industry. So there's the business of making movies, right? Which is like what I do on set. You're the journeyman. You're the craftsman. You're, you're making crafting the movie. You're the craftsman. But then there's a whole other side of the industry that is the business of making deals, right? And so this is, these are the people that sort of assemble the pieces and get it ready to go into production, this is where the studios come in, right? They're the ones saying, we like this script with this, this concept, with this writer, with this producer, with this director, with this cast, and they're packaging these things. And then they hand it off to those people who go and make it. And they they watch over that. They shepherd those projects through production. So you have two very different businesses at play here. So I can say that part of it is like, yeah, okay, the filmmaker – wants to make this particular movie and he's the craftsman and it's going to be great you know it's Ridley Scott I love Ridley Scott movies he's one of the best ever in the business in my opinion but he makes exclusively R-rated movies I love every single one of them I mean he's fantastic I love them. but they are all R-rated so if you wanted to take from if you were a businessman which is what those studios are if you were a businessman you would turn and look at it and say well I'm going to make movies that have the highest probability of making me money back because that enables me to make enough money to have a few of those pet projects that we can throw out that way. But they don't do that. It's the most bizarre thing. They just like, let's continue to make this other stuff that doesn't make any money. Well, Yeah, it, it's, it's beautiful. It might be art. It might be whatever. But it, you can't continually make art if you don't make some money at the same time.
0: <laughs> That's my favorite quote so far. <laughs> you can't <laughs> continually make art if you don't make some money sometimes. Well, listen, like, that
1: sounds like, oh, of course, Einstein, like, how hard was that to come up with? But But look at people's actions.
0: I don't care. What's that? I don't care how wise that is. Look at people's actions. You know? Oh, man. How many times do I bring up that we all know we should probably have gone to the gym yesterday and had eight glasses of water yesterday (laughs) and I want to raise my hands how many people did it? Do you know what I mean? Like, how many had a nice
1: big bowl of sugar cereal? Mm-hmm. Mate, sorry. Yeah.
0: You know, knowing knowing is not... well. No. So thinking no. about that, if we think about a takeaway, you know, we have lots of like entrepreneurs, investment fund managers, like our listeners are, you know, a, you know, a bunch of like innovative executives, of big companies and stuff, right? When you think about, yeah. even though most of us would think it was cool to make movies, we don't, but I, I'm trying to extrapolate this. I'm trying to think of how does this apply elsewhere? And I think... Mm. How often do we fall in love with our own idea? How, you know, you're building an app, you're building a new business service, you're building a, you know, right? Like, I I like wasted, I wasted a whole year last year, we built an investment fund that was like, really ideal. If you knew a lot about how owning an investment fund works, it was collateralized Downside protected. Yeah. We had like a built-in insurance policy where we could screw this whole thing up and they get all their money back because of the collateralization. And right. uh, we went around to all these people, and they're like, "I just want to own a building with you." I don't, I don't get it, <laughs> right? And like the couple right. of people who do know a bunch about investment funds were like, "Yeah, we want to see you buy a bunch of buildings." I get. You've got this CEO who's bought two billion dollars worth of buildings, and this partner that's run. Commercial real estate for 30 years. We want to see you buy a few of those buildings before we invest in the GP, the general partner. So why don't you do some sure. of those? So nobody wanted it, right? And it's like so gut-wrenching to look in the mirror and go like, I successfully oh, yeah. innovated. Like our lawyers, I can't tell you how many arguments yeah. got in the lawyers. We're like, no, this is possible. Put that like this and you know these different regulations. And we came up with something like really innovative. And the problem is we're selling to people that want to buy a building. They just want to buy a solid well, you know, building that's going to pay, you know, and they don't know, want a complicated right. You're looking for a basic investment to get money back. Yeah. And even oh. though what we are pitching them would literally have made more money, that's not what they wanted to buy. And, no. and so dude. anyway, you are preaching to the choir, dude, you are preaching to the choir. Now I didn't,
1: I didn't go to school and I don't know all the kind of ins and outs from finance, all that kind of stuff. So I, I had to kind of get through this you know the bumpy way, and you know. So one of the greatest quotes I found along the the route, this topsy tour you know, turvy sort of squirrely route that we took because we were forced to. We didn't know any better. Was uh, you know you can you know how you spot the pioneer,
0: the guy with the arrows. He's in the his guy back? with all the
1: arrows in his back, <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, like
1: and i felt like for so long and even today i feel like for so i mean again we were we were teaching remotely via webcam in 1999 1999 <laughs> you're only
0: 20 you were only 22 years too early uh,
1: dude i cannot tell you how much how often we have faced that i cannot tell you like okay well we want to teach film in school well they don't teach films in school so now we gotta open, we gotta we gotta go to the market and tell the market why they should be teaching a product that they don't even have yet, a course that they don't even have yet.
0: Like, dude, I it's, cannot tell you how hard. That it's so was. funny. Like, and it's not like we had no money, right? We we had people buying in, but it just it was not at the rate that was gonna hit the goals we were looking for. And so we we told them we didn't want their money. Do You know what I mean? So that we could. Well, start we didn't over. have any money. We didn't have the time. <laughs> Too
1: funny. <laughs> I like literally our first website, the one you're talking about, you want to know how that was built? Yeah. So I sat down and started researching like code, and I'm like, oh crap, I don't know how to do this. But I was the only person because Chet was Chet was the assistant to Jason Hoffs at the time in feature development at DreamWorks. And I was the only one in the building that had anything to, you know, that I, I could do. So I downloaded the 30-day free trial of Flash. <laughs> and I taught myself action script and I built the website in like 30 days because that's all I had, right? We didn't have enough money to pay for Flash. And that's how we built our first website. <laughs> and I built the first, I don't know how many iterations of, of the website I built them because I, by then I had learned ActionScript. So, okay, well, I'll program to do this. I wanted to do this now. And then they got rid of Flash ActionScript. you know, it was gone. It was like, oh crap. So I can, I'm still good at reading code, but I can't, I can't write it anymore. That's funny. So we hired it up, but so, yeah, you do what you have to do, you know?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we were, when we were chatting before we got started, I was telling you about like this compliment from, from 1999. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about 21 All years right. ago. About then 2000, when Kevin Fox told me I could be, he said, Oh, you, you could be a producer. And it was because of some introductions I'd made for him. And, you know, he, so he had found the Blair Witch Project back when it was filmed like a documentary. I think it was at a, I think it was at a deal in Florida, I believe you told me. And he's the one who said, okay, cut all that stuff out and let's make it, let's try and make it seem like it was a true story. Like, so I don't know if you know, it had like all these like news segments in it. Do you know this story? No. There's like fake reporters and stuff. And it was like being reported on the news. And it was like, so he's like, cut all that reporter stuff out. Oh,
1: oh right. Yeah. 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 I, re- I do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Kay. For sure.
0: Cut all that reporter stuff out and we'll start some fake rumors that it's true. <laughs> it, it was brilliant. And, and it I became remember, the phenomenon. It, was, right?
1: it out, it's Undance. And it was like, there was this whole like underground swell long before there was social media, really. Although there was a bunch of MySpace stuff. I remember, and the whole swell was, is this real? No one knew at Sundance if it was real or not. You gotta go see this. It's amazing.
0: <laughs>
1: and that was the smartest campaign marketing in a film I had ever seen in my entire life. Uh, ever.
0: Yeah, it made some money. So he made good money on it, but then the people <laughs> that bought it from them made amazing money on it, right? Yeah. But but so but they've never
1: been able to capture that lightning in a bottle no. again.
0: We well, filmmakers. Can't, you can't do you can't do originality twice though. Do you know what I mean? Like, no. it's like every time there's like a viral video, like you know those like infomercials that are so funny you watch all five minutes on YouTube because they're just right. so funny that you'll sit through the whole thing. And then inevitably, it's like right. you end up buying those as stocking stuffers for brother-in-laws, right? Okay. When somebody tries to use the same actor and the same thing over again, you never see the view counts because that novelty, that novelty factor is gone, right? Yeah. yeah. So, no, so exactly. let me ask you this. You know my 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 boyhood dream here of like the twenty year old thinking like oh maybe I could be a pr- producer because this producer said I could. Tell me what makes a good producer.
1: So there's different kinds of producers, and this is probably something that a lot of people who watch the movies who see the credits roll up at the end don't really fully understand all of the you know what is a line producer an executive producer a co-producer an associate producer or just a flat out producer so they all kind of do different things and some of them are like gimme credits like oh we need that guy he wants to be associated for whatever reason and he helped write a draft of the script oh we'll give him an associate producer credit right, so some of these credits are, they don't mean a whole lot there's two there's there's three credits that do mean quite a bit and they they mean differently in television than they do from features so an executive producer in television is the guy in charge, even above the director. The executive producer of a television series is the man in charge, is the person in charge, I should say, right? Got to be PC today, is the person in charge. And, and the down the food chain, so now you have a producer, and that's the person. I, th- I think Jerry described this best. So Steven Spielberg comes from directing television. And television has this sort of a, a, a very quick pace that you have to keep up with. It's rapid fire. And a lot of times that executive producer is having to ride the director to say, hey, we got to hurry. We got this done. We got to get this. We got to get this. Most directors don't like that. Most artists, craftsmen don't like someone riding them to hurry their, their craft. He, it made him nervous. Even just to have the producer on set, which is totally understandable because he came from that television world. And so Jerry, this was on The Color Purple in 1995, The Color Purple, which was Jerry and and, and Steven's first picture together. And Jerry kind of had to pull him aside, because he noticed that whenever he, he showed up to set, Stephen would get just like, you know, aggressive. And so he said, he, he he pulled him aside one day and said, hey, Stephen, let me describe to you how I feel a producer, what a producer should do. So a producer on a movie is the guy who goes out into the field and he sets up the easel and he gets the canvas out and he puts the canvas on the easel and he he gets the palette out and he puts all the paints on the palette, and gets out the turpentine and the brushes and the towel and everything, and then turns it over so that the the master can paint his masterpiece, right? That's what a producer does on a feature film. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the, the things a producer can do, right? And there's all sorts of producers and there's going to be, you know, all sorts of different types uh, and styles of producing. But in my opinion, that is the best explanation of what a producer really does.
0: So when you think about that skill set, you know, we talked yeah. about Jerry Mullen. Chat said that he wants somebody who's level headed. What are some of the other mm-hmm. traits that, that to you would indicate somebody somebody's going to be a successful producer
1: they have to have a lot of people skills i mean there's just i mean jerry's really good at this chet's really good at this but you have to deal with all so i mean in the film industry and i i think i it's something that i actually enjoy working with but in the film industry there's every shape and color and type of person i mean every religion and every ethnicity and, and and every political thing in the spectrum and so I enjoy working with that whole spectrum because they all bring something to the project. Right. And, and so you hire the best. I don't care what you believe in. If you're the best at what you do, I want you working for me. Right. That's the goal. And so I, I enjoy working with all sorts of different kinds of people. And I think you have to have the ability to see someone as a person and not see someone as a belief. Does that make sense? A label. Yeah. You're not black to me you're the most talented you know makeup artist in the world I, that's how i see you that's why i hired you i didn't hire you because you were a male or a female or a homosexual or any of that i hired you because you're the best at what you do i don't see you as anything else right that's who you are. You're a person who's really a gifted cinematographer or a gifted actor. And, and I think it's important. And that's I wish that were, were true of Hollywood today. It's unfortunately not. Predominantly in Hollywood, we're seeing a real push to silence a lot of people, sadly. I mean, and, and a lot of those voices, again, are the most talented in the world. But you know, that's that's kind of where we find ourselves, unfortunately. Anyway, that's a whole other story.
0: <laughs> so so You've had, you know, a lot of ups and downs. You had a lot of success. What's next? What's the new excitement?
1: Oh, you know, any good filmmaker probably has at least 10 irons in the fire, right? Ideas, concepts you're playing with or or relationships you're trying to build or forge. Today is a really interesting time in the industry because especially after COVID, you've got movie theaters are not doing great business. And and the streaming services are exploding like nobody ever could have dreamed. So they're making really great material too. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. I think it's better than 90% of the stuff that we were seeing in theaters before this. And, it's, and I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that an industry that's been around for a hundred years can be flipped on its head and overcome overnight by somebody who quite frankly, I mean, Netflix was started by a guy who was upset that he got charged by Blockbuster for a late fee, you know? And so he was like, well, I'm going to create a new service where you mail it back to me. And that's where it started. Yes. And before long, he was the first one to say, let's stream this. Let's put it out so everybody can see it. And everybody thought, oh, whatever. Here we are. It was, it was pretty quick.
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny is I remember being broke when that service came out. I was living in Huntington Beach and being a movie nerd. I wonder you being a movie yeah yeah right (laughs) being a movie nerd (laughs) I just loved that I had movies at all times (laughs) like that mail service was the best thing because I'm such a procrastinator you know I paid like triple in late fees what it ever cost me to rent a movie right (laughs) and so like movies at all times and like was semi-affordable it was like always having movies on tap I thought was the greatest thing and like. What's now funny is I wa- I actually watch less movies. I'm so much into audiobooks these days. My spy book, like, oh yeah, I listen to my business books. Well, you're getting books. older, man. You're getting older. Well, I don't know. I listen to my business books all day, and then like my <laughs> treat at night is listening to my spy books. Right there, you go. But let's uh, do a spy movie. I've always wanted to do a spy movie. Listen, so I don't know if I've told you this. I have like 20 scripts started. Do you really? Yeah. And uh, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> I'm I'm trying to make good money so idea, I can go. Dude. Listen, I'm trying to follow the advice of how to become a millionaire in a uh, movie maker, so, like start <laughs> off a billionaire and go to Hollywood. This is my, <laughs> this is my plan. That's as exactly. you have know. Have a really rich uncle, be born into the Spielberg family and you're good to go. Yeah. So I'm working you're on, I'm go. working on step one there and then, you know, then go to step two. But it is interesting, this idea of like, there's so many things that we know are true until they're not anymore. You know what I mean?
1: Oh yeah. 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 For sure. Like the
0: flat earth. The earth is flat, right? Wait. Yeah, I just found out. <laughs> I just, I was watching I a YouTube video. Out. Apparently, I thought it was like this blue marble thing. No, it's actually the camera angle that makes it seem like a marble. <laughs> it's actually a, it's that's actually right. a flat disc and that's why it looks that's like. Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me. I think entertainment is fascinating to me as an industry because people want to do it so bad. They'll do it for cheap or free. So oh, the competition yeah. is just absurd, you know? So I don't know if you know this. I was a I was an illustration major trying to get into art center to go do a really? industrial design, entertainment design degree so that I could go draw for the movies. And my mentor... Really? What do you,
1: you want to do? Do you want to do concept art? Yeah, I wanted to do board, con- what was
0: you Yeah, I, I had this mentor from okay. Sherman Oaks who had drawn like a bunch of stuff for Fifth Element and Men in Black and... Because originally I wanted okay. to draw the pictures on Start. snowboards. And then I switched to, I want to make all this cool stuff for movies. Right? Dude, I didn't even know you were an artist. Oh yeah. So that's uh, awesome. So the thing is though, this mentor who funny enough is still my partner and mentor all these years later, building the investment fund with me now. Okay. He just said, you know, Jess, that's great. But do you realize if you got rich enough, you could just make the movie about whatever you want. You don't have to draw people pictures for other people's <laughs> movies. And it like, it was like this, like, Oh you know, That's so good idea. I don't know if it's really panned out because with know. all the ups and downs, I, I, I still haven't been than. rich enough to make any movies yet, but, but I'm still, I'm still going on the John Verhessen plan. Get rich, but make movies.
1: You know, look, I, here, look, here's the trick though. And I, honestly, this is the trick to making it, to making it in movies. If I had to do it over again, this is what I would do. Every filmmaker that is worth their salt can trace their, their lineage back to a single movie that like just worked. Do you know what I'm saying? Every one of them. And you can name a filmmaker, and I'd throw out, oh, yep, this was their first one. And after that, everybody wanted him. But making a great film is, (laughs) there's a saying in Hollywood that I love because it's so true, and that is that this isn't rocket science. This is way harder, right? Because making movies is like this slippery it's like holding Jello in your hands, you know. It's like juggling Jello. Like if you manage to pull it off by some amazing feat, uh, congratulations! Like just finishing a movie is is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And for anybody that's actually made one, you know what I'm talking about. You you go to the movies and you sit down and you watch a movie and you, oh, this is great. You know, this is wonderful. There's a reason. There's like 400 names associated with this thing because it takes a lot of people to pull this off and to do it well. And so. If I had to do it over again, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a low budget film unless it was just enough to be able to hire at least the talent available to me to know that I would be able to pull it off and do it well. Does that make sense? Like there was a guy that came to me and I won't say who it is because he's pretty famous. He came to me and he, they wanted to do an animated show and they'd never done an animated movie before. And I come from animation. So, you know, when I was 16, I got my first job as a layout artist for Saturday morning cartoons on television. And so I kind of, I understood that, although I hadn't done animation for a very, very long time, I knew what was involved. And I said to him, you know, he had, I think, like $13 million, and he wanted to do this, this animated feature film for $13 million, and, and he wanted, like, Pixar quality, and I was like... I mean, I sat across from the table and I tried to explain to him the reason that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to get Pixar quality. That's like saying, I want a Ferrari for the price of a skateboard. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it's somewhere there's a disconnect. And so I literally leaned across the table and he said, so if I gave you a $13 million check today, you you couldn't do this movie. And I told him, I said, you know, if you handed me a $13 million check, I would take that check and I'd slide it across the table back to you and say, my career isn't what, isn't worth the failure. I know that check would give me.
0: That's hard. It wouldn't be worth it.
1: Yeah. It's hard to stare you money in the face to, and turn it down. You have to be willing to do that because – The value of failure in my business is that you don't get another chop, You don't get another second shot. You don't get another chance at this. If you fail, you're done. It's unforgivable in the film industry. That's why you don't hear about all the failures somebody had and then a success. You don't. You hear about the success somebody had and then the consecutive successes they had afterwards because they were good and they kept hiring the same people, right? right. They kept putting that same team together. You look at Steven Spielberg's crew. It's the same crew every single
0: show because he
1: hires the best, right? And you so know, I was I trying have been, to have enough money where I, I could at least hire the best.
0: You know, I I think about this quite a bit. Two, two things that I think about. One is do you know this Reed Hastings book? CEO of Netflix, his new one called No Rules Rules.
1: No, but it sounds great. I yeah. like the title.
0: It's so great. It's very similar to his head of people, Patty McCord, wrote a book called Powerful a couple of years earlier. Very similar, and it's about this philosophy they had of like, hey, listen, if you're hiring admin staff, if you're hiring hiring like people who are doing a known a known job kind of a thing, right? Then you know, pay pay upper middle incomes for that stuff. You know, pay two thirds, pay two thirds of the income scale. Right. Like, you know, be be a little bit, be a bit bit above average. But he says, if essentially, if you want to win Oscars, if you want to win at this sport, then treat it like a pro sports team. Don't promise people employment for life. Promise them the most amazing compensation package while they are the right player for the sport. And let them right. know this is the game we're playing up front and that there'll be a great severance on the way out and and come into it with this idea of like, you know, you hear Bill Gates say like his top programmers at Microsoft were not 10% better than the average programmer. They were over a hundred times better mm-hmm. than, than the average coder, right? Right. And so right. it's this philosophy of like, we will pay what it takes to get exceptional talent for those rules, but you might not be here forever, but like when it comes to nailing this, we will pay what it takes because it's such an outsized thing. Like, I think like my whole career early startups was like, if I'm honest, it was mostly like, who's the cheapest person that's good enough. That's what my hiring philosophy probably was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then at like 29, I'm running this investment fund and I hire this guy. He's like my dad's age. And he's like three hundred grand a year, which is like triple what I was paying my next highest person, right? And right, the guy wasn't three times better; he was ten times better. Like he was really cheap, if you measured on dollars right. per. You know performance. What he gave you? Yeah, dollars right. per performance. Yeah. Dollars for performance. He was incredibly cheap, but on paper, yeah. he seems like we're overpaying the guy by like two hundred grand, right?
1: Well, and how much of that? You know, you got to wonder, like my other philosophy is, and I remember telling a bunch of students this, we were, I was speaking to like 4,000 students somewhere, I don't even remember it was, Arkansas, I think it was, and I said, I'm so glad I didn't get my break until I was older, because had I been given the opportunity to, to do what I love to do and what I wanted to do, I would have failed. And now after 30 years, I can honestly say I could step up to bat and I could hit it. I'm not saying it's going to be a home run, but I'm going to get on base. You know what I mean? And I know that now after 30 years because I, I've been around, you know, the big shows, the little shows. I've seen what works. I've seen what doesn't work. If you don't have the experience going into it, like, I don't know, there's, there's also some value to going in blind and just swimming. You know, I remember hearing the guy who runs DARPA, you know, DARPA, the, the defense There was a, he was the guy who hired people for DARPA and they asked him, like, who do you find, who do you hire for DARPA? Like, where do you find these kids? What college do you, do you farm from? He says, college, we don't go to college. By the time students get to college, they realize what's impossible. I go to high schools because these kids haven't figured out that what they're trying to do literally can't be done, (laughs) but they don't know it. So they had, you know, swim that way. Okay. And they start swimming and they, and before you know it, they have swam across the Atlantic ocean, you know? I
0: I do think about like the advantages and the pain of that, right? My, my first investment fund, I didn't know, I didn't really know we shouldn't be trying to raise our first fund in 2008 and that everybody else in the industry had turned off their fundraising. They literally just were not asking for money. Like, they're just like, oh, we'll wait, you know, we'll, we'll raise in 18 months. Right. Well, I didn't know that that's what you were supposed to do. And so we did it anyways, you know, and, right. you know, all sorts of failings being a 27 year old CEO, 28 year old CEO that are unfortunately the pain of like successful in this way, unsuccessful in other ways. Right. But right. it's it's also interesting, this idea of like the woulda, coulda, shoulda's that can be like such a ball and chain. And, and I think somebody who makes me two guys that make me excited about where I'm at today is have you heard of this guy, Naveen Jane, used to work at Microsoft. He's a billionaire. No,
1: he I knew more billionaires.
0: <laughs> uh, so he, he, he was the CEO of Infospace, you know, which kind of became like okay. the biggest deal on the internet for a while there. Right. Yeah. I think he's worth like three or 4 billion himself right now. Anyways, he This interview he did with James Altucher, he talks about this idea of like he wishes he wishes that so he doesn't start his first company till he's almost 40. And he said, I wish I could have got started earlier so that and I'm sure the sentence is going to be so I could have my success earlier and I could have gotten more done by now. Blah, 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 right? No. He says, I wish I could have started earlier. So I could have had a couple of good failures in before because I would have been better prepared for my business. And I said it's the most fascinating assumption to go like you've got to learn some way you know and i thought yeah. hey i've had some great failures by right now i must be said i'm in his ideal position You're right track. But, yeah but but it was an interesting thing to think that to not assume he would have had that same success earlier you know there's this right. great youtube series some vimeo as well that called um the long game and it's about like mm-hmm. leonardo da vinci and all these people and he goes like hey the media tells you like if you haven't been a billionaire by 27 like zuckerberg you you're probably a failure like let's face it that ship has sailed right ignore the statistics that most people don't get it until their 60s or 70s okay but (laughs) right but but you have officially failed you you you're over 30 now (laughs) pledge okay so he he goes through all of these really successful people and he goes okay they had they show this early promise and then they screw stuff up for like 10 or 12 years. And he goes through all these like Leonardo da Vinci paintings that never got finished and commissions he lost and reputation loss and all these other things. And like finally in his 40s, he does this The Last Supper with that perspective people had not put into 2D art before. And his break right. shows up and he becomes Leonardo da Vinci, right? And it's just this really? idea of like he, these like forgotten years in between, like quit being depressed about them. All the people you, virtually all the people you look up to have them, you know, except for those oh, very yeah. few rare exceptions. Yeah. And uh, it's just like the, mo- my, my brother sent it to me and we've owned all these businesses together and the charity and the ups and downs or whatever. And it was just like the most like therapeutic thing to watch this, <laughs> this series, <laughs> the long game and be like, right. Anyways. I remember like,
1: I, I thought a lot about this because how many people who are truly talented out there who've never had their shot and they're out there. I promise you, they're out there. And I thought, you know, I spent spent like my 20s trying to get where I thought I wanted to be, right, to that director's chair, which is the coveted position on any movie. I want to get to that director's chair. What do I have to do, you know? And I spent... My twenties trying to to get there. And my 30s, I kind of spent actually like having a couple of opportunities and and kind of getting the feel for what that looks like, what that feels like. And then my 40s, I spent getting kind of good at it. Like, oh, okay, I'm I'm comfortable with the weight of like millions of dollars worth of a budget on your shoulders that you carry around every day, because if this fails, it's pretty much you who did it, right? The director gets the blame. It's never the actor. It's always the director that gets the blame for if a film doesn't work. And you get, during my 40s, I remember feeling like, oh, okay, I'm feeling I'm feeling comfortable with this. I'm, I'm okay with the stress that it brings and all the, the weight that it brings. And then I think in your 50s, and this is me projecting now because I'm only 50, but in your 50s, I think you spend your 50s getting good at it right? You spend your 50s getting good at what you spent your whole life trying to do. You spend your 50s getting good at it. And you spend your 60s getting respect for what you've spent your life doing, right? That's how I foresee my future.
0: Yeah. So what's funny is that because easily sound like depressing and takes too long and whatever, right? No, unless you look at the statistics of like, in, in the business world, when people get wealthy, like, it is so often 50s, 60s, early 70s when it finally There's shows no
1: up. The, and the trick to making that not depressive is enjoying the journey that you're on. Right? You, so, so ha- like, can I've I enjoyed every movie I've worked on. I've enjoyed every, all the people I've worked with along the way. I've enjoyed the journey. Now, well, I'm except not saying for one it guy. I,
0: huh? <laughs> except for one guy. Except that one we won't, guy. We want to talk I'm about not, him
1: that was was a journey that was enjoyable all the time i'm many times i've lamented like when am i going to get my shot why haven't we had the kind of success that i felt like we should have what is it that's keeping us down dude i've had all those conversations and i don't know what those answers are but at some point you have to put those away and say yeah but what did you did you really not enjoy making that movie did you not enjoy the time you spent with your family when you were off? Because in the movie business, you get paid pretty well. And, and when you're not working, you're off. You can do whatever you want, right? And so you get time with your family that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And I don't know. I just think... And sometimes you find yourself in the craziest of places. I remember Brigham Taylor telling a story once where he... It's just the absurdity of the film industry. They were shooting on an island in the middle of nowhere they were doing the pirates of the caribbean and he said the camera was looking this way and all it saw was one little dude on an on an abandoned island but if you could turn around and see what the camera was looking at he said there was a flotilla of ships for wardrobe and props and like they had to bring everything to that island to make this movie with and he said you couldn't imagine it like the, the absurdity of standing in this flotilla of ships and realizing we brought all this to shoot that dumb little island right there. But no one will ever see all of this going on, you know? And so in your career, you have to kind of look at it that way. Like you're only seeing this, you know, and when you become successful at 60, you were the, you were the quickest 30 year overnight success (laughs) or 40 year overnight success that ever lived, you know? And that's, it happens all the time.
0: Well, anybody who wants to watch the long game, the the guy who made it is called Adam Westbrook. So go to YouTube, watch the long game, and feel, feel better about yourself. It could be your therapy via you Jess. Okay, so we've covered a ton of things here. I'm going to end with my favorite question, which is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Oh,
1: man. Well, there's different kinds of advice, right? So there's spiritual advice. There's... Yeah, let's go for business advice. advice. Let's go for business advice. Business advice. Okay, that's 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 more structured. In, uh, for me, and I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but it has applied to me because I'm in an industry where people give up a great deal. Not, not in time or anything like that. I mean, they give up. Like, I can't tell you how many people who, who get in this industry and get started and then their dreams don't happen overnight. And so they literally give up and they go do something else, right? And so- I've always seen them as people who, like, if they were above me, if they gave up, I am I just went up a little. You know what I mean? Like, every person, like, you're moving up. Every person that quits, you're moving up. That's how I always I saw it. And I think the one thing that's helped me kind of not give up, and when you're like that 40-year overnight success guy, it's important to have something to hold on to, Right. <laughs> as as it's pulling you through this. And for me, it was, don't get so anxious that failure is predetermined. So be patient. This takes time. Understand that, that, you know, there's a great quote by Akira Kurosawa who stood up to accept at the Academy Awards, he accepted the Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, if you don't know who Akira Kurosawa is, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. You know, like the Seven Samurai and things like that. He doesn't speak English. He's a Japanese guy. And he was like 90 at the time when he got his award. And he stood, up at the, he stood up at the podium and he accepted his award with his translator standing next to him. And he literally says, as he accepts a Lifetime Achievement Award, he's respected by every filmmaker that's ever been, you know, born. And he looks at, out among the audience of all these people and he says, I've been doing this for 65 years. And I think I've almost got the hang of it. And at that moment, you're kind of, you find yourself going, okay. I need to step back and get a little perspective. Don't get so anxious that failure is predetermined. You can get going so fast and get so lack of patience or so excited to get started or get going that failure is the only option that's left to you. Take your time, plot your, your, your footsteps, make the journey, enjoy the journey, but don't get so anxious that it's predetermined failure. That's
0: great advice. Yeah, I'm going to get working on my first 65 but, you know,
1: From a business perspective, one of the things we do with Sneak on a lot, just to come full circle, yeah. and we've, we've done this once or twice. We've done it 20 times. With We do it every year with teachers from around the country, and they come to Los Angeles, and they spend a week with us, and we beat the living tar out of them. Uh, you know, it's 14 hours a day, 14, 15 hours a day, and we make a short film in one week together. And everything from development all the way through shooting and we take you to different studios to meet different executives and you get to hear them speak for hours and it's a lot of fun and we've done this for 20 years with teachers and every single time some teacher says you need to be doing this for businesses businesses should come and this is the greatest model I've ever seen for people coming to find out how to work together as a team. And I've been around a little while, and I have never seen an industry, like when a film crew is working well together, it is like a well-oiled machine. It would blow your mind at how well it works. And we've often thought, and everybody tells us, you should open this up to businesses so businesses can come and participate in this and learn like team-building exercises because, man, if film is nothing, it is a a team-building exercise. You feel like a family when you're done 16 hours a day for, you know, Four or five or six months.
0: Well, I was going to say, maybe we should send them to Navy SEAL training, but they're far less likely to die going to yours. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know. I don't know. In the film industry,
1: we can get pretty dangerous, but yeah, probably. We use firearms, but it's all blanks.
0: It's all blanks. Well, hey, this is a party. Thanks for making time for it. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: That was awesome. I love it. Okay. I think you're going to have my partner Chet on later, aren't you? Some other time?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.